You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey y'all, it's Leslie Ann. I'm so glad that you're taking the time to listen to the podcast this week. We're on week five in our local Bible study here in Brandon, Mississippi. And yesterday in class, we talked about 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, and what submission looks like in the Christian life, specifically in society and in the workplace. In these verses, Peter calls believers to let their good conduct preach the good news of the gospel to those around them. To find out more about our local Bible study here in Brandon, Mississippi, visit LeslieAnnJones.com. So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Father, I thank you for your word and for your truth, God. I pray that you would speak to us now, Lord, through it. God, and that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would grant us the power and the strength to live according to your word, God, to take these words of truth, God, and walk them out in our daily lives, God, that we would be people who honor you, not just with our words, but with our actions too. So I pray that you would be honored and glorified in this time, that we would come to see you and know you more clearly, God, and that we would be changed by you. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen. So last week we talked about the new identity that we believers have as children of God. And I wanted to back up a little bit before we get into this passage because it directly applies. A lot of scholars and commentators think that the last two verses that we talked about last week are like the theme verses of all of 1 Peter. So the rest of what he says are founded on chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Okay, But before he gives that charge in 11 through 12, he talks about this identity that we have as the people of God, that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. And this identity that we have as the people of God comes straight from the foot of Mount Sinai, where Moses and the people were before he went up to receive the Ten Commandments and all that sort of thing. And God said these words, he used some of these names to call the people of Israel. But as we know, then Israel could not obey God's voice, right? He couldn't keep the commandments. 
that was the charge that God gave to Moses. He said, if these people keep my word, if they obey my commands, they will be my treasured people. They will be my royal priesthood. And he's saying that about the people of Israel. And they failed. The Old Testament is a story of that failure, right? About how they could not keep the word. They could not live up to the law. So the promises that were given to Israel were then passed on. Who were they passed on to? Who's the only one who has kept the law? Sunday school answer. Jesus. Thank you. Jesus is the only one who was able to keep that law with perfect obedience and to follow it in the way that God demands. And so those promises that were given to Israel were passed on to him. He inherited those promises. And then through him, then that inheritance is passed on to us. That identity as the people of God applies to those who are in Christ. So Peter, this is important because he wants his listeners to know that they, the church, this new body of believers that God has called out from their nations, he wants them to know that we, they, we, all who believe in Christ, are the true Israel. And just as Israel was meant to be a light unto the nations, then so also are we. So then when he gets into those verses in 11 and 12, and he's calling them as sojourners, as exiles, be a light. You know, he says, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he says, you do that not just with your words. So there should be proclaiming happening. Like our words should say, tell the truth and the good news of the gospel, but also with your actions. That's what he says. Abstain from the passions of your flesh. Okay, so first of all, we're supposed to not do some things. We're supposed to stay away from sin. That's number one. And then second, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So abstain from sin and do good. Those are the two things that he says that mark the people of God. And then he takes those instructions. And the whole point in all of that is so that what? So that the Gentiles will glorify God, that they would come to know who God is and what he's like by the actions of not just the words, but the actions of these new believers that are living life among them. And so he takes those two instructions, this general principle of abstain from sin and do good, act honorably among the Gentiles. And then he applies it to several specific situations that that church was facing. So we're going to talk about two of them tonight, specifically in society at large, our civic life, and also um, in the workplace, he was speaking to servants and masters, the work relationship that they had. Now, he's also going to talk about marriage later. That's next week. Fun times. And um, also then life in the church. So he's going to take these two principles and then applying them to all of those situations. And that's where we land. And he starts in this description of keeping your conduct honorable with a call to submission. Now, who likes that word? a super fun word and we talked about some of the cultural connotations that it has for us and why it's so hard for us as americans who value independence and free thinking and personal rights to um, embrace the idea of submission but we're called to submission whether we're like it or not so it's good to talk about what submission is i think and what it is not What is a biblical idea of submission? So the definition that I'm going with is that submission is a voluntary, willing, laying aside of the self in order to honor the will of another. With that in mind, this is countercultural. 
because we live in a very self-centered society. Does anyone agree with that statement? So submission at its heart, since it's 100% others-centric, kind of flies in the face of that, and it's hard for people to understand why you would choose to lower yourself and serve others in this way. So it's countercultural, and it's also respectful, a way to honor and respect others. It's voluntary. It's willing. It is not under compulsion. And so it is a way to um, lift others up while we lower ourselves down. And then the last part of it, I think, is that it's a gift freely given. We choose to submit to others. It's a choice that we make. So what is submission? It's that voluntary laying aside of your own will to honor the will of another. What is submission not? What submission is not? Well, I think we need to say that it is not a license for abuse or domineering behavior. It's also not a call to blind obedience. Submission is not weakness. Um, To the contrary, it takes tremendous strength of character to lower yourself in that way. To submit when you don't want to, when it's not really something that you're feeling at the moment, to do that. And then the last thing I want to say is that submission is not just for women. It is treated often as a women's issue in the church. Because we're not dealing with slaves and masters so much anymore, um, when we talk about it, a lot of times it's in that marriage relationship context, which we'll talk plenty about next week. But the Bible calls us to submit to one another in Ephesians, that all believers are called to submit one to another, that it's part of our worship to do so, to consider the needs of others before ourselves. And so it is not something that's just for women, but all believers. And Peter's instructions here are given to the church at large. It's not just directed at one people group. It's to all of us. We're all called to submission. So with that in mind, then we'll turn to the passage in particular. So verses 13 and 14, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So why do we submit to governmental authority? For the Lord's sake. What does that mean? To honor and glorify and point to him. That's right. And also, and this is in that, um, Verse 15, which we haven't gotten to yet, but we will. Uh, Because it is the will of the Lord. We submit to him to honor him and because it is God's will for us to do so. Now, I don't think that any of us are going out and planning a revolution. So um, no one really is suspecting that of us, hopefully. But in Peter's day, the Christians were starting to get kind of a side eye from everyone in their sphere because it was this new religion that no one really knew very much about, they were catching the blame for things that weren't necessarily their fault. For example, the fire in Rome that Nero started. So they were starting to, I guess, come into question by the groups around them. And because so many of the teachings that we have in Christ are about freedom, there was a real fear from Rome, that the Christians were going to start a revolution, that they were going to, you know, that they were going to undo all the layers of society. So that's why these instructions to submit are so important because Peter is saying, no, 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 no. We need to be good citizens because we are not undoing the whole world right here. 
we're going to change it from the inside out. So we're going to infiltrate the society, but we're not going to take it apart at its seams. We're not trying to just change the whole way that everything's done. But by doing good, we're going to shine light in the dark places and things are going to then get better. People are going to come to know Jesus and they're going to be changed by him. So that's the context that he's writing in. They were beginning to experience prejudice in very real ways in their lives. So when he tells them to be subject, he's saying that they should not give the authorities any reason to punish them. Give them no good reason to punish you. So I don't know what was happening. Don't participate in riots if there were riots. You know, give them no good reason to punish you. Live above reproach. Be good model citizens so that they have nothing to back up the rumors that are flying around about you. And that's what he gets to in verse 15. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is how you put down falsehoods and misconceptions. Not with your words. Not with arguments, not by protesting and proclaiming your innocence, but by doing good. He wants their actions to prove their detractors wrong. Show them that you are not the people that they say you are. Demonstrate to them what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so that is the call that he has given to them. He wanted their lives to prove that Rome had nothing to fear, that they weren't going to undo society, they weren't planning a revolution, they were going to follow Christ, and this is what it looks like to be a Christ follower. We submit, and we do good. So they were to be model citizens, because that was God's will, for us not just to preach the gospel with our words, but with our actions. He wants us to do good, and to put down every argument that people have against us with our lives. Let your life be evidence of Christ's work in you. So it's not enough just to say the good words and to preach the good news, but your life itself has to preach it. You need to live evidence of a life that is changed by Christ. And with that in mind, that's what he gets to next. We live as people who are freed from sin, but slaves to God. Verses 16 through 17. Live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. So as people who are free, does that mean that we're free to do whatever we wish? We are free from sin, but then slaves to God. So it, our freedom doesn't give us license to act however we want to. It doesn't give us permission to buck authority or to do any of those sorts of things. Um, our freedom, we were set free from sin in order that we might be made slaves to something else. We are slaves to righteousness. We are slaves to God. So then living as servants of God is what compels us to do good in the world around us and compels us to submit to those in authority over us. Why? Because God is the one who has given them authority. He sets leaders in place, even the unjust ones. The Bible is full of stories of how God has used ungodly nations to be arms of his justice, to carry out his will in the world. 
So whether we like those rulers or not, we can trust that the Lord has set them in place. And because it is God's will that they be there for whatever reason, whether we can understand it or not, whether they are good and right leaders or bad, terrible, awful, unjust leaders, we can trust the Lord to handle that. It's not for us. Practically speaking, our obligation is to the Lord and to honor him as the one who is in control of all of these things. So the day after election day, I don't know if y'all remember this, back in the 2016 election when Trump was elected, um, which I am friends with all sorts of designer, artsy, creative kind of liberal people because of my work. And so my Facebook newsfeed just exploded with how the world was ending and they wanted to move to Canada because this was happening. I can remember the same kind of posts a few years earlier when Obama was reelected from the other side of the camp. So it goes both ways. It's not just the world is ending because this person has been elected as president. But Peter is saying that we serve a Lord who is above all of that and sovereign over all of that. And this world is not our home. Who are we? Where is our identity? In heaven. Our home is in heaven. We are citizens of heaven first. So our time here in this world, we are sojourners and exiles. And whatever is happening in this world, whatever the political climate may be, our home is elsewhere. So we cannot get so wrapped up and tied up in current events like the world is ending because this person is in control when really the Lord is in control. He is sovereign and he is the one that we serve. That is what he's saying. We submit to the Lord. We serve him because the God we worship, the God that we serve is the one who has ordained all of these things. Which means then that honor and respect are required from us as a way to honor and respect the Lord. This is what he says. Honor everyone. Treat everyone with respect. Don't be rude and ugly and mean and unkind. Honor everyone. Whether you agree with them politically or not, that includes those social media posts. Y'all are all sweet. You don't make these posts, but I'm sure you see them. You see them. We don't reshare them. We don't do that. That's not what we do. We honor everyone. We love one another. We've talked about that extensively. We fear God. And we honor the emperor again. We respect the emperor. So first he calls them to be good citizens. And then he moves into that second category to be good workers. That's in chapters and chapters and verses 18 through 25. But before we get into it, I think it's good to talk about some of the presuppositions that we bring to the Bible when we read it. We talked through some of that with submission and our cultural ideas about it. Um, But we have lots of ideas about slavery based on our personal experience of slavery in this country. Not that we have any of us personally experienced it, but the history of our nation and our culture's um, history of slavery has influenced us. It is a topic of conversation in the news all the time. Um, We are still living in a nation that's reeling from the effects of that institution and still recovering from it. And I think we bring that with us to the Bible when we read passages about slaves and masters 
because we have that context in mind a lot of times. Now, the slavery that they were experiencing was not like American slavery and what happened here. Those people were taken against their will from their homes and forced into labor. Um, that, and it was a quite different thing in Rome. Now, the people in Rome were bond servants. They were slaves. I want to be clear that it was slavery. But it was different, a completely different situation than what happened here. They were often skilled workers and managers and bond servants in that time were paid for their labor. They could even eventually purchase their own freedom. Now, practically speaking, that didn't happen very often, um, but it could happen. There was room in the system for that. But they were often stuck in that position. They did not choose this job. They didn't choose their master. They were still subject to the whims of that master. Okay? It was still slavery, and it was still not good. But it was the reality for the people that Peter was writing to the slaves made up the largest class of people in Roman society. They were the working class people. And there were a whole bunch of them who were coming to faith in Christ and needing to know then how, what that meant. How does this affect my life? And that was one of the main concerns of Rome is that um, with Christians preaching freedom, then the slaves were going to rise up and revolt and then the whole society would be undone. But instead, Peter, along with Paul, instructed the slaves in ways to carry out their work in a way that honored God and pointed to Christ. And not in this letter, but in other ones, in Paul's letters, he also instructs masters in ways to honor God in Christ within the relationships that are already there. Because isn't that what we all need? We all need to know how to honor Christ in the relationships in which we find ourselves. And so Peter is explaining to them, this is what this means for you, okay? So in your work, honor Christ in this way. So obviously, we've already said this, um, a modern-day American workplace cannot compare. It doesn't match up evenly with their situation because you do get to choose your work you, you can quit a job and move on. You can change your career if you want to. We have great freedoms that they did not. So it does not compare. I want to be clear about that. But there are some principles that we can take from these instructions and apply them to our own working lives in ways that we can then conduct ourselves while we're at work in a way that honors Christ and points to him in all that we do. So all that said, let's start reading verses 18 and 19. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures, suffer, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So it is easy to work cheerfully for a good boss, right? I assume I've always worked for myself and by contract. So you people who have had bosses need to tell me. Are there some people that you enjoy working for more than others? Yes. Okay, that assumption that I made is true then. So when you have a bad boss, someone who is in charge of you, and they just, whether they, they like got the position for some reason that you can't figure out why. Maybe they knew somebody and they shouldn't be in that position. They're not qualified for it. Or because they're just really bad at managing people, 
They play favorites. They, maybe they're too harsh. There are all sorts of things that can make a person unfit for leadership in the workplace. Um, it's much harder to work for someone like that who does not deserve our respect. We willingly give our respect to those who are good and right and people of integrity. We have great and tremendous respect for them, and it's not hard to give it to them because they are deserving of it. But Peter says here that we ought to respect all those who are in authority over us in working situations, whether they deserve it or not. Why? Well, primarily because our lives are no longer about us. They're about God. This is something that we talked about last week a little bit, that when God calls us, out and makes us part of his chosen people we are chosen to do something and our mission then becomes less about our own gratification and glorification living out our dreams and purposes and more about fulfilling this call that God has put on our lives we all have this call not just those who are in professional vocational ministry but we are all called to proclaim the gospel and to live it out in front of others that is what our lives are about now. We are the people of God, and this is what the people of God do. And because our lives are now about God, and because they are to point to Him in all ways, that's why we give respect, because we belong to the Lord. And it is good for us to show people respect that they don't deserve, because that's what Christ did for us. When did Christ die for sinners? What does Romans 5 say? Was it when we got our lives all fixed up and we were like acceptable in some way? No. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we give people just basic honor and respect because they're people (laughs) and because they are someone, especially if they are unsaved, unbelievers, we want to conduct ourselves in a way that they might someday believe. Not just, oh, they're such a bad boss. I can't believe I have to put up with this. But that we are glad to work cheerfully for them and do good work for them so that our lives may point them to Christ. That's why we do it. He says in verse um, 19, being mindful of God. That reasoning is important. We do these things because we are mindful of God and how we might be perceived by other people or how other people might perceive God because of us. That's important. We endure unjust and unfair treatment well because it reflects on our Lord and Savior. So always be aware, he's saying, that people are watching you. And that goes for us too. People are watching. They notice how the Christian acts. Does she grumble about the workload? Does she complain about the boss behind their backs? Does she join in on office gossip or roll her eyes or sigh about every little task that she's been assigned as if it is somehow unfair that she's being asked to do this thing? Does she work hard? Does she pull her weight? Or does she slack off and let others carry the load? How does she conduct herself in the workplace? It matters. 
because how we act in all areas of life is a direct reflection of our relationship with the Lord. So we need to keep our minds stayed on Him. If you have a boss who is unfair or unjust or just bad in general, maybe they're just a gross person. We know people, and when I say gross, I mean like morally <laughs> gross. We work for them with a cheerful heart as if we're working for the Lord. If you have a bad boss, then just pretend that the work is for the Lord instead because he is our master. The Lord is ultimately. Who are we slaves to? The Lord. So then everything that we do, all of our work is for him. And when we turn our work then into an act of worship, people notice that there's something different about the way that she completes her work. There's something different about her attitude. She never joins in on the gospel, on the gospel. That's not what I meant to say. (laughs) Gossip. She never joins in on the gossip. She always has an encouraging word to say. She always has something uplifting. She's joyful. She's cheerful. She's encouraging all of those things. And in that way, instead of being a Debbie Downer, if you are, what's the opposite of Debbie Downer? Is there an opposite? I want there to be an opposite. Did you say penny positive? (laughs) Let's go with that. No Debbie Downers. Penny positives. (laughs) When we do that, the gospel goes forth. Because nobody's going to really come up to you and ask you what you believe. They're not going to ask you about your theology on what happened at the cross. But they will notice whether or not you act like what you say you believe is true. And our actions must line up with the words that we speak in order for us to be effective in this task that God has given to us. So, verses 20 and 21 says, What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. When we endure unjust treatment well, we reflect Jesus to the world. It is an opportunity for us to show them the ways of Christ. And y'all, it is easy to say from this side, because I am not in the midst of one of those unjust situations. Um, But when that happens, we are able to glorify God in ways that we would not be able to if everything went as planned. And the thing about it is that the call of Christ, the way of Christ is a way of suffering. The promise of the gospel is not that we would live good and happy and full lives here on this earth, but that we would do that in the next one. That's the promise of the gospel. God's promises are true and we're looking forward to those things, but we can do that because we have a God who has entered into the suffering with us. He's not far off. It's not as if he doesn't know our pain or know. He knows what it's like to be treated unfairly. If anyone knows, it's Jesus. So we have a Savior who has come alongside us and has walked that road. And so that means that when it happens, because Jesus says, don't be surprised when you have troubles in this world, they're coming. When it happens, we can take all of that to him 
And he knows there's comfort and there is peace there because he has walked that same road. And because he has walked it, we, we know that he's with us in the suffering and that we can have our peace and our example in him. Y'all, this is a tremendous gift that God has given to us because in his suffering, Christ shows us a way. He shows us how to do it. So never forget that he's with us in the suffering. And then Peter gets specific then about the way that Christ suffered. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How many of those things have to do with speech? All of them. But Jesus did not do any of it. Jesus did a lot of things when he was on earth. He preached to thousands. He fed the 5,000. He performed miracles. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He taught in the synagogues. He traveled all over Jerusalem. He did all sorts of things. But do you know one thing he did not do? He did not start a revolution. And he did not defend himself against his accusers. He didn't try to set the record straight. He didn't commit any sin. He didn't lie. He did, when they insulted him, did he shoot back with a sarcastic comment? No. He didn't trade insults or reviling. We do not use that word. I should bring that back. He didn't do that. He did not issue threats, although he had all the power in the world to smite them where they stood. Also a word we should bring back, smite. He didn't do any of those things, but he had the authority. He had the power. He did not. So it makes me wonder then what our first reaction should be when we feel wronged. Now, I told you before in our discussion that my first reaction is to protest. I want to prove my innocence, and I am usually fairly good with words. And so I can be very eloquent about all the ways that I am right and you are wrong. If I need to be. And that is my gut reaction. That's what I want to do. I want to um, get my side of the story out there. There's two sides to every story and you haven't heard mine. But we do like to settle the score and get even. Maybe we don't admit it because we're nice Christian ladies. We don't do that sort of thing, do we? We're never, ever vindictive. None of us. What about when you're hurt, when your feelings are hurt? None of us ever lash out, ever, when our feelings are hurt, right? Do not click send on that email. Yeah. So this is our sin rising up in us. Um, Our human nature wants to retaliate and to clear the record and to make ourselves look better. Um, It's all about ourselves. And if you get trampled while I'm making myself look better and fixing this, that's fine. Because at least people know now that I didn't do anything wrong. That is not the example of Jesus. He did not do any of those things, not a single one. Why? Well, it says that he entrusted himself to the Father, to him who judges justly. He trusted the Lord to handle those things. 
to the one who judges justly. So as believers, we trust that God ultimately is going to right all the wrongs, that he is going to set the record straight. That is for him to do. Now, does injustice make us angry? Yes, it does. Absolutely. Are we sometimes going to be frustrated by the way that we are treated? Yes. But then what we turn around and do with that anger and frustration matters. You can fight back with your words or you can take your words to the Father and leave it with Him because He knows and He is strong enough and big enough to handle it. And here's the thing. Um, When we experience injustice or we're wronged, whether it's a tiny slight or a major wrong, entrusting it to the one who judges justly means that it's going to be dealt with someday. So on the one sense, we are grateful that justice will be served, but in another sense, it should grieve us. That should bring us no joy because one of two things then is true. Either that person who has committed the injustice will pay for the injustice eternally or two, Christ paid for it with his life. If by some chance they come to know him and believe in him. So, The cost of that injustice is high and will be or has been dealt with. But that should bring us no joy because that cost is a life. So instead, we should adopt the attitude of Christ who, while hanging on the cross, prayed for the people who put him up there. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And let's be honest, anything that we face, any petty difference or slight injustice, does not compare to that. It is slight in comparison to what Christ faced. And if he can pray that prayer for people who were in the act of killing him, then certainly we can pray that kind of prayer for those who wrong us. That's the kind of attitude that Christ faced, and that's what it means to um, submit in this case to consider that other person's salvation more important than our right to justice, our right to be heard, to know that how we act in a situation like that may be life or death to that person. What facet we show them of Christ's character, that's our chance to preach the gospel to them. And if we miss it because we are so concerned about ourselves, then we're the ones who will have to give an account for that. How we act matters. And this is why. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter is quoting here from Isaiah 53. It was in your homework to read. If you have not read it, I encourage you to go do that because it lays out the role of the suffering servant and exactly the attitude of Christ that he had for us when he came. But he says here in verse 24 that our sins were crucified with Jesus, that he bore our sins with himself on the tree. So our anger, our need to retaliate, Um, That get even spirit that we sometimes have, there's no room for it in our lives anymore 
because Jesus died so that we would not be subject to those things anymore. What are we subject to instead? Him. We're subject to Him. And our lives point to Him, the righteous one whose wounds have healed us. This is what we have been called to do. To humbly submit, to do good in all areas of our life, in society and in work, whether the people we are dealing with deserve our respect and our honor or not, we do it in the hope that some of them might be saved, that we may preach the gospel of Christ to the watching world, not just with the words that we say, but so that by our actions they would come to know what he is like, that we are the living hands and feet of Jesus in their life that they would come to know him through our good conduct, that they may see him in us, that they may recognize him in us. And by that knowledge of who he is, that they may be forever changed by it. That is the goal, and that is what it means to be the people of God, to submit your life, to willingly give it up for the good of others, that they may know Christ and glorify God in heaven. Father, I thank you so much for your word, for your goodness, for your example, Lord. God, and I pray that you would um, forgive us for all the times we have failed to live up to this calling, for all the ways that we have refused to submit, Lord, and honored ourselves over that those of others, God. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people who honor you and glorify you and point to you, who demonstrate your ways in everything that we do, that our lives would be a reflection of your goodness and your faithfulness and your self-sacrificing love, that in ways both big and small, God, our lives would preach the gospel to those who are around us. Father, as we go throughout our week, God, I pray that this would be true, that these words would um, come to life in us and that we would be changed by them and that you would be made known to all. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.